Now, how do you think it would go down in Washington, D.C. if I were to show up and say, you know what, I reject whoever's president, whether he's, whether he's Democrat or Republican. I won't get into politics. But let's just say I just show up in Washington, D.C. and say, I reject that president. I think I'm president. What do you think is going to happen? I'm going to get ignored, right? And rightly so. Don't have the authority. And I would be pretty arrogant to watch to march into Washington, D.C. and just think that I can announce myself to be president. Foolish example. But we're going to see today that, that arrogance and the rejection of the Lord's authority are two keystone habits of false teachers. And as ridiculous as my example is, it happens frequently with false teachers. Right? This is what they do. Let me give you another more realistic illustration, something that actually happened. Acts 19 tells us that there was a period of time where, where just phenomenal things were happening, and God was, was working very miraculously through the Apostle Paul. So much so that, that um, we're told that claws or aprons that, that even were nearby, the Apostle Paul, were then taken to, to people and they were healed of their, of their diseases. They, um, the diseases left them, evil spirits left them. But there's a group of Jewish leaders, uh, Jewish exorcists is what the Bible calls them, seven of them, who were sons of a chief priest in Ephesus. And so being sons of a chief priest, you know, they weren't about to accept the gospel. They weren't about to accept the Jesus that Paul preaches. But they saw what was happening through Paul's ministry and they wanted to do something likewise, probably to show that, you know, God was still working through their little synagogue that they had in Ephesus with the Jewish leaders and through the chief priests. They, these sons wanted to support the ministry of their father. So they got an idea. They came up with a, they concocted an idea where they would borrow the Jesus of Paul to cast out some demons, right? So they assumed that they had that authority and they rejected Christ's authority to the things we'll see that false teachers do. And let me just read to you the account of actually what happened. Acts 19, being in verse 13. But some also of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to invoke over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, listen to the words, I implore you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now the seven, now seven sons of one named Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. Here's what happened. Verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul. But who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, subdued all of them, and they utterly prevailed against him. Utterly prevailed against him, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. They sought to turn attention away from Christ and ended up doing the exact opposite. Right? So one demon can easily handle seven men. If you remember, one angel killed 185,000 Assyrians. Right? One demon easily can handle seven grown men. Whooped them. Right? To put it in our vernacular. They assumed they had authority to command this demon out. Right? And some would say, well, they weren't Christians. Well, that's true. They didn't have Christ within them. But Christ never gave his disciples, all right, you and me, the authority to cast out demons. He gave that authority to the apostles to do, right, to demonstrate his power and authority and his working. But he hasn't given that authority to us. That's just one example of false teachers today. Like, like those Jewish exorcists, false teachers today are rebellious and they're arrogant. 
They want to do things their way. And they will assume authority to, to actually tell others what to do. And, and we're going to see today from Jude these two habits uh, to add to the other habits that we've looked at already from Jude. And so I just want to read these together, uh, read from the text together. And Jude, beginning at Jude 8, and I'll just read kind of the, the paragraph that flows together, verses 8 through 13. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheming glorious ones. But Michael the archangel, when he, disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men blaspheming the things which they do not understand, and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals, by these they are destroyed. Woe to them! For they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have poured themselves into the air of Balaam, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feast, when they feast with you without fear, carrying for themselves clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jude writes these these words to help us identify false teachers. Those who would otherwise uh, look just like us in many ways. They've crept in, as Jude said in in verse 4. They've crept in unnoticed to the church. But Jude writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words to provide us what I'm calling four identifying habits of false teachers so that you can unmask them and you can contend for the faith. I mean, that's the bigger picture. We want to contend for the faith, to be obedient to God's word in that. So just by way of quick review, you can identify apostates first by their reliance upon dreams, by their reliance upon dreams. They're habitually going back to their dreams. Those dreams could be things they actually dream. Right? Not given by God, but they're, act- they're actual dreams, or they could just be desires, that they're just living for their own desires and their own flesh. Secondly, you can identify apostates by their pursuit of sexual immorality. Because they are unconverted, they cannot restrain the flesh, and therefore they are going to continually pursue sexual immorality. It's, it's by habit. It's just what they're going to do. Given enough time, it will be discovered. They just cannot restrain the flesh. Thirdly, what we're going to look at today, the rejection of authority is, is the third identifying habit of apostates that Jude provides us so we can unmask them and contend for the faith. You see this in verse 8 about the middle. He says, they, these men reject authority. So these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority. Now again, this, like the other traits or habits this is something that is ongoing it's not a one-time deal so this is something that's that is a regular occurrence in their life just like they cannot restrain the flesh they cannot submit themselves to the lordship of christ essentially to reject authority means that they rebel against the authority over them Um, that the rejection can be a bold and and proud rejection like what we see of of an atheist or an agnostic but it can also be the quiet rejection that that someone provides uh, mostly internally although it always reveals itself in some some action so the rejection of the authority can be manifested in, in, in various ways so the the you can have the loud kind of proud rejection. For example, uh, in Luke ten sixteen, Jesus uses the word this way. He says, the one who listens, listens to you, listens to me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And he who rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. So it's, again, it's the same term that Jude uses for rejection. So what does Jesus say to his disciples? As you go into the city, when he sent them out, if someone rejects you, that's easy to see. They're not listening. They turn away. That's, that's kind of the open, uh, the, the open rejection. 
not only are they rejecting the disciples, they're rejecting Christ, and Jesus says anybody that rejects him also rejects the one who sent him. In other words, the Father. So another affirmation that, that to get to heaven, to know the Father, you must know the Son. But the rejection can also be subtle and mostly internal. We see an example of this uh, in, in Mark 7, 9. Um, in talking to the disciples, he was saying to them, you are, you are good, or he's talking, um, sorry, he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. He says, Jesus said to them, you are good at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say, if a man speaks to his father or mother, whatever you might benefit from me is korban, that is to say, given to God. You no longer leave him anything for his, anything, sorry, you no longer leave him to do anything for his father or mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition, which you have handed down so you do many such things as that. So Jesus charged the Pharisees and the Sadducees with rejecting the law of God. Now, did they openly reject the law of God? No. Openly, they, they would affirm the law of God. Right? But, but they came up with other things that kind of supersede the law, and they chose to overlook things, some of the finer points of the law. Right? They overlooked these things, and by doing that, they rejected the law of God. Let me just give an example from our own our own lives. So every once in a while, I know it's rare, every once in a while, a child thinks they know better than mom or dad. Right? Every once in a while. Right? And they just get a mind of their own to, to do whatever it is they want to do. For example, you can think of the, let's just think of a homeschool child, don't have an experience with that, who, you know, just stands up when he should be sitting doing his studies. And his mom looks at him and says, you're supposed to be sitting, sit down. And he knows that if he doesn't sit down, that his mom's going to have a talk with dad when he gets home. So he decides to bend his will and sit down. But internally, he's still standing up. Right? He's sitting down because he doesn't want to meet the wrath of dad for disobeying mom when he gets home. But nonetheless, he's still rebelling inside. So that's the kind of rebellion that the false teachers will, will manifest. And eventually it's going to come out, right? If someone is, is not submissive, if a child is not submissive to their parents, eventually it's going to come out in a different, a different way. But, but that's the kind of suppression that false teachers will have. They won't openly defy God and defy God's law, but they will do it uh, quietly. Now, I want to develop the idea what, what, what Jude says here. They reject authority. And I've, I've already mentioned the Lord's authority, so I've given away kind of the answer already. But Jude doesn't say, actually, what kind of authority. Some have seen that the that false teachers reject all authority, right? And that's true with some false teachers. But but keep in mind that we're all born depraved and we all like to get things our own way. So really, you could say to one extent or another, every unbeliever kind of rebels against authority. Just general way of habit. So I don't, I don't think that's what Jude is talking about. He's not just talking about authority in general because that, that's not really going to, going to help us identify a, a false teacher. Uh, John Calvin and Martin Luther understood the authority that Jude would be talking about to be civil authority so that false teachers wouldn't obey their civil authorities. Now remember that John Calvin and Luther lived in a time when, when there wasn't the separation between church and state that we have today. So the church and state were very closely aligned and in some cases were one and the same depending on what country you lived in. Right? So they they didn't they didn't see that division, but but nonetheless, it seems to be a bit of eisegesis, which means importing an idea into the text. It seems a bit of eisegesis to to come up with that idea to interpret that that this authority applies to human beings. And the reason I say that is because there's nothing in the context to to say that that these men reject authority. So there there there's no specific authority of other men that are that are mentioned in this particular text 
Now, the authority that's rejected, some have said, is angelic authority. And, and, and why do they look at that? Well, one reason is, is because um, the word that is used for reject authority, that word authority can also be translated as dominions. And the word dominions is used in first, uh, sorry, in Colossians 1.16 to actually refer to angels. So Paul uses it to refer to angels. So some have thought, well, maybe Jude is using it in the same way. Um, but the problem with that is, number one, the, the, when Paul uses the term, he uses the plural. So he's talking about dominions or authorities, right, which could apply to multiple angels. But here, Jude just used the singular, right, eject authority. So that's that's one little obstacle that we have. The other the other obstacle is that if it's if it applies to an angel like the uh, uh, angelic authority, then Jude would have to give us a clue of, on which angel it was that they were rejecting because it's just one, right? And there's no clue within the text of of Jude that there he's speaking about one particular angel. Now he does mention an illustration of one particular angel. But that's not who the, the false teachers were interacting with. We'll see him, um, actually two of them in, in verse 9, in just a minute. So it, it would be, um, what, what Jude is referring here to, I don't think is angelic, rejecting angelic authority. And another reason to, to, to reject that view is because if he is talking about rejecting angelic authority, it would be not so different from what he's about to say, blaspheming holy ones, which we'll get at in a moment. There's there's a little, Jude likes to use word plays. He likes to repeat things three times, and he likes word plays. So the word that Jude uses for authority here is the Greek word kuriotis. And it, it is related to the word kurios, right? Now, I don't uh, want to like uh, read Greek unless it's helpful to you, but it, I wanted you to hear that. It, the, the word that's related here is to the word kurios, right? which we know to be uh, referring to Lord. So this is really a rejection of lordship is a, is a way that you can think about it. These men reject lordship. And we already know, look from verse 4, that these men deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. So Jude is repeating what he said. He's reinforcing what he said. And, and so the authority that these men reject is ultimately Jesus Christ. These men crept in unnoticed. The rejection of Christ wasn't obvious, but it is nonetheless there. It is the quiet type of rejection, of rebellion, and that they would be able to to reject Christ and yet continue to be within the fellowship of the Christian community. So eventually that, that rejection is going to be made manifest in some way. And that's why Jude is telling us this. They're eventually going to reject that authority. Now, as a follower of Jesus Christ, I am a willing slave of Christ. Right? I serve Christ willingly, imperfectly, right? just like you do. But our inner desire is that we want to serve Christ. We want to obey Christ. I mean, that's the, that's the heart change that God gives us when he brings new birth. We want to obey, even though we don't do so perfectly. But that's very different than the false teacher. The false teacher only wants to give some semblance of obedience. He has no internal desire to obey the Lord Jesus. Now think about this. What is your heart attitude to authority, the Lord's authority in your life. Are you glad for that? Are you willingly submitting yourself to the authority that the Lord has over your life? Or do you chafe under it? Is it something joyful to you? Or is it something that is um, something that you disdain or hate? And if you disdain or hate the Lord's authority, that's a good indicator that you might not be even born again. And I just say that to warn you, not only to warn you, but to plead with you to submit yourself to the Lord, to call upon his name, to forgive your sins and to ask him to to give you the new birth. And by faith, he does that. He gives the new birth. He changes your heart. 
so that, that you desire what he desires. You love what he loves. And that, that's, a, that's a transforming process, but he's the one that gives the new heart to do that. But the unbeliever is, I mean, the uh, false teacher is different. And that rejection of authority is going to be there, though very subtle. Now, I just want to illustrate this, what, what Jude is saying with some, some things that are going on with our own society, just to give you an idea. There are so many of these things that we'd be here a very long time for me to mention even, um, you know, more than a half dozen or something like that. But let me just give you a few of these. These are areas that I see where false teachers are, are working to, in a way that they give claim to following Christ, but at the same time, they are rejecting the authority of the Lord, which is, which is really the authority of the Lord comes to us, not by audible voice, but in his, in his word. So let me just give you a few illustrations of this. BioLogos is an organization that when you first look at them, looks pretty good. They're trying to take faith in Christ, and they're trying to take science, and they're trying to bring them together. Sounds a lot like Answers in Genesis, except they have a very different approach. BioLogos explores God's word and God's world to inspire authentic faith for today. That's what they claim. Sounds good, right? Well, it's it's a very dangerous type of uh, organization because they talk a lot about God. They talk a lot about faith, but at the same time, they're talking about that. They're undermining the word of God because they are working to, to, to get Christians to believe in a deistic type of evolution, right? which runs counter to the word of God, right? The evolutionary, the deistic evolution came about because of some scientist theory and interpretation of science, not because of the word of God. So what they do is they look at science and then they try to go back to the Word of God and say, how can we make this fit? And they'll do what I call hermeneutic gymnastics to explain away the text and to say, well, we can still, we can still be faithful to God and hold evolution. And no, you can't. You can't. Now, I say that knowing that churches that hold six-day creationism are in a minority. We just are. But there's no way to justify from the text of Scripture anything but six-day creationism. And to do anything else is an example of rebellion against the Lord's authority. Right? Just period. Right? I'll offend some Christians for saying that, but that's the truth. You need to know the truth. Right? So BioLogos might have some good information somewhere that I didn't see. But I'm just saying they are masquerading as someone that's supporting the word of God, but they're really undermining it. That's one. Let's deal with another that's in a lot of headlines today. So you have, there's a there's a, a well-known pastor just outside in the Atlanta area named Andy Stanley, actually the son of Charles Stanley, who I mentioned before. He, for many years, sounded okay, right? But today. He is, at one hand, trying to call people to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, while on the other hand, he's saying the Bible's not trustworthy. That doesn't jive, but, but that's what he's doing. Listen, and I'll quote him. He says, if you were raised on a version of Christianity that relied on the Bible as the foundation of faith, a version that was eventually dismantled by academia or the realities of life, maybe it's time for you to change your mind about Jesus. Maybe it's time for you to consider the version of Christianity that relies on the event of the resurrection of Jesus as its foundation, unquote. Okay? So he's like trashing the Bible, but he's saying, believe in the resurrection. Well, excuse me, how am I supposed to believe in the resurrection if I don't trust the Bible? Well, Andy Stanley would say, trust me. What does that sound like? He's putting his own opinion above the word of God. So he fits the pattern of a false teacher. He's going to say some things that are right, enough right to make a lot of people, he has a very large church, to make a lot of people think that he's on the right path. But he is leading them on the wrong path. Maybe another example. 
This one's a bit more controversial, right? You obviously, you probably heard of Beth Moore. On the one hand, she encourages women to study the scriptures and and to learn the scriptures, and she teaches the scriptures. But on the other hand, she's defying the scriptures by teaching men and by encouraging uh, women to become pastors and teachers of men. So on one hand, building up. On the other hand, tearing down. Right? So that's the pattern of a false teacher. They reject the authority that's written in the word of God, explain it away, right? And then they have the arrogance to think that they could determine a new path. And, and Beth Moore isn't blazing a trail. There's many women that have gone before her. She just, she just happens to be one of the, one of the most popular during this time you know, with a lot of, um, a lot of resources that have hit the bestseller list. So she's very influential in Christianity, uh, astray. I mean, Christianity today. So <laughs> another, another, Another source that I would caution you on is the Gospel Coalition. I've mentioned this before, but again, the Gospel Coalition has, it's, it's a collection of writers, pastors, and some of them are really good. I mean, some of them I really like, but others are false teachers. And the Gospel Coalition refuses to clean up its ranks and, and to call, they can't even define what an evangelical is. So the tent is as broad as you want it to be. If you claim evangelical and just do something, you can do it. So again, they're, they're building up the word of God. And on the other hand, they're tearing it down. So it, there's not like one person in charge of all this. It's a coalition. But it's, again, it's not all bad. But it's, one of the, it's, it's that mixture. It's like when ministries are mixed, that's when they become very dangerous. Because on one hand, you can read something. You think, oh, I can trust them. And then you read something else and you might be just automatically trusting them when you shouldn't be. So again, that's contend for the faith. I'm not saying don't go visit there. Don't use the resources. Just saying go there with your guard up and contend for the faith. Take it all back to the word of God. Said another controversial one, right? What about the LGBTQ thing that's going on right now, right? Churches by the boatload are jumping onto this. Just one example of this is the Church of England's General Synod. They approved recently a a motion to publicly and unreservedly, joyfully welcome same-sex couples into their congregations. And that you were kind of used to that because of so many headlines coming out. And I know none of you are tempted to go join the Anglican Church, but I, but I wanted you to, to to see this example because it's just one of them where you have so-called pastors who are leading their flocks astray. So again, they're leading and visually they're submissive to the Lord Jesus. They would say that, right? But by their actions, they're rejecting his authority and they have a lot of arrogance to to go against the word of God, what the word of God says. You just cannot support LGBTQ marriages or those kind of relationships by the word of God, right? It It just goes against it. So much so, I just want to read a quote to you from some Anglicans in Africa who are conservative and holding to the word of God. So here's faithful. Let me just quote uh, them. This is a statement they made against the um, Church of England, who they say has abdicated their role. They have disqualified themselves and will no longer be the mother church for the Anglican church. Right? So they, let me quote them. Since the Lord does not bless, bless same-sex unions, It is pastorally deceptive and blasphemous to craft prayers that invoke blessing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Refusal to follow the biblical teaching that the only appropriate context for sexual activity is the exclusive lifelong union of a man and a woman in marriage violates the created order, unquote. They are taking a stand, right? Even some cases against the, the civil governments that they live under. But they are taking a stand. They are holding fast. That's what contending to the faith means. Holding fast to the word of God. So just bring this all home. Some of the examples you may not even have heard of. None of this may be anything that you're exposed to or influenced by. All all I have to say is examine people's lives of those that you listen to. And not, yes, your pastor, those live teachers, but also what websites you listen to or what books you read, right? or even what movies you watch. Reject the authority 
of those who reject the authority of Jesus Christ. And again, they will give you lip service that they are obedient to Jesus Christ. Right? You'll know this by what they're actually teaching and what they're actually doing. But reject them. Right? Do not let them have influence in your life. Right? That's what it means to contend earnestly for the faith. Right? That's why Jude is saying, identify these. These are, these are the ones you do not follow. You do not want to allow influence your life. So blasphemous, um, kind of this um, whole idea of rejecting authority then leads to the blasphemous speech, which is the fourth identifying uh, habit of apostates that you must use to unmask, uh, unmask them so you can t- contend for the faith. So you can identify apostates by their rejection of authority, but also by their blasphemous speech, by their blasphemous speech. Look at the end of verse 8. Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and blaspheming glorious ones. Now, the, the blaspheming means to, to speak against them, to speak or act in a way that unjustly lowers the person. You're trying to degrade them. You're trying to bring them down. Uh, you blaspheme someone when you speak evil of them, when you revile them, when you defame them or slander them. You can, you can blaspheme someone by treating them with disdain and disrespect. And the Lord has much to say about uh, blasphemy. Uh, Luke 12.10, there he says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. I bring that up uh, because it helps us understand what blasphemy means. Blasphemy means to speak against. Everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, that is blaspheming the Son of Man, speak a word against him, it will be forgiven him. But he who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, that is speak a word against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven. In other words, when, when someone gets the, 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 the internal conviction and witness of the Holy Spirit in their life, and they just totally reject, that's the ultimate witness. I mean, when I say it's the ultimate witness, what convinces you that the Bible is true? Right? There, there are... I can show supporting facts. I can show history that supports it. But ultimately, what convicts you that this is the word of God is the Holy Spirit? If you reject that, you're not going to believe this. And then you're lost. There's no, that's the ultimate authority. So when you reject the ultimate witness, then then there is no forgiveness of that. That's what Jesus is saying. But that's what it means to blaspheme, to speak against. Um, In Luke 22, if you would just turn there, you could see this, I think, as I read it, be helpful to you. So Luke 22, Luke chapter 22. And I'm going to read, pick up reading in verse 39. Oh, that's not where I wanted to be. Oh, there it is. 20. Yeah, 22, verse 63. Again, we're trying to understand what it means to blasphemy. Now, this is when Jesus was arrested as he was being abused uh, before his crucifixion. Verse 63. Now, when the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him while they beat him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blasphemy right again the it just helps us understand that what it means to blasphemy so luke uses the word blasphemy it's kind of like a summary statement they were blaspheming how are they blaspheming him they were blaspheming him by by mocking him by beating him by blindfolding them and asking him to prophesy who hit him so they were belittling him Um, look look at uh, luke 23 verse 39 Luke 23, verse 39. Here, Jesus is crucified, and there are two criminals next to him. And one of the criminals hanging there was blaspheming him, saying, Are you not the the Christ? Save yourself and us. So here, Luke is saying he was blaspheming. How is this criminal blaspheming Jesus? By saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Now, if you look at those words, you could read that in a way where it's like earnest. Are you not the Christ? But that's not how he was doing because he was blaspheming. Luke is telling us this. He's saying, are you not the Christ? How ridiculous. Right? I mean, that's, that's his thought. 
And he says, save yourself and us. He's not saying like the penitent thief on the cross who says, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That one went away justified, but not this man. He was blaspheming. He was bringing bringing Christ down. Now, in reference to to blasphemy, we can blasphemy people. We can blasphemy God. We when we when we blaspheme God, we claim the same kind of authority that God has. We claim equality with God, and that's what the Jews accuse Jesus of. Uh, you can turn your Bibles to Luke. I mean, sorry, John chapter ten. John ten. John chapter 10, verse 30. Beginning of verse 30. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. So again, blasphemy of God right, would be making yourself equal. That's what the Jews were charging Jesus with doing. Now, Jesus was indeed God, so it wasn't blasphemy for him to say, I and the Father are one. But the Jews did not believe in Christ, and so they looked at it as blasphemy. So it is, it is blasphemous for human beings to, to take the place of God, to claim the place of God. Right? So you can... Blaspheming God by claiming to know God while you live in disobedience. So you can blaspheme God by claiming to be equal with God, but you can also blaspheme God by claiming to know Him but living in a way that's totally disobedient to Him. For example, in Romans, just listen to these. Romans 2, verses uh, uh, 17. Actually, I'd like you to turn there. Romans 2. Romans chapter 2, I'm just beginning in verse 17. Here, Paul is writing to bring conviction to the Jews, to bring conviction of sin. He says, but if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law through your transgression of the law, do you dishonor God? Look at what he does in verse 24. For the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. So he's saying that you Jews claim high privilege. And yet because of how you live, you're blaspheming the name of God. Because you're saying don't commit adultery, but you're committing adultery. You're saying don't steal. The word of God says don't steal, but you steal. So that's another way that we can blaspheme God. Now, realize that that we are we are to live our lives in holiness and righteousness. And God's word forbids us to blaspheme, period. This is something that is just forbidden. Um Titus mentions that. Before I get there, I just want to emphasize from 1 Timothy 6.1. Paul says this, All who are under the yoke of slaves are, are to regard their own masters as worthy of honor so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. Notice what he's saying you, to slaves. You're to regard your own masters as worthy of all honor so the name of God and our doctrine will not be slandered. So by how a slave lived, he could either honor God or slander God. If he claimed to know God, but yet lived in a detestable way, a rebellious way to his master, that would be slandering or blaspheming God. Uh, Paul used the same argument in Titus 2.3. In Titus 2.3, you can turn there with me. 
Kind of follow along or just listen. Either way is okay. Titus 2. Titus 2.3 is instructions that Paul gives to, Tim, to Titus to, to teach to the, the church on the island of Crete. He says, older women, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may instruct the young women in sensibility to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure workers at home, being kind, sorry, at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, Look at why. So that the word of God will not be slandered. It's the same idea. So you do these things. A woman is motivated to do these things out of honor for Christ. as she does not want to bring slander or blasphemy upon the name of Christ. So all these verses show us the different ways in which we can blaspheme the, the Lord and blasphemy um, um, his name and, and the word of God. Now, If we go back to Jude, he says the charge against these men or the habit that he mentions there is that they would blaspheme glorious ones. That's the way that the Legacy Standard Bible translated. I think the ESV as well uses glorious ones. The NASB 95 uses angelic majesties. But really the word here is doxa. Right, from where we get the word doxology. Again, it just a, it's a word association I'm trying to help you with. Doxology. It means glory. It's the, it's the idea of being glorious. And so really the uh, translation like glorious ones is, is the better translation because it makes you wrestle with, with um, who are these glorious ones that the false teachers are uh, slandering or are, um, are blaspheming. So the idea of being glorious it really means the uh, idea of shining bright. Um, it means radiance. It means splendor. Uh, and Jesus uses the word in this way, like in Matthew 6, 28 and 30. He says, why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil. They do not spin. I, yet I say to you that, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. So Jesus is using the splendor, the glory of Solomon as an example of how you should trust um, in him. Like he uses the birds of the air is who he's, uh, he's talking about. Right? But it just shows us that Jesus is used to that word, that the word glory isn't always associated with God. It frequently is, but not always. Um, the word doxa is related to the word doxology which ascribes praise, is something that ascribes praise and glory to our Lord and to our God. And, and so some have tried to link the word for rejecting glory, the word glory here, uh, to God. They say that, they, that here these, blaspheme, these false teachers are blaspheming um, God himself. Right? But I don't think that Jude is doing that because here the word uh, doxa is... is um, is written in a way where it's it's in the plural, right? And so this can't refer to God, who is a singular God. Now, so as we think about this, who are these glorious ones that that are being blasphemed in this particular case? Well, in this case, we are helped by turning to the parallel passage in the Second Peter. So one of the principles of Bible interpretation is you let the clear passages of Scripture help you interpret the way the passages that maybe aren't so clear. So in Jude, it's maybe not so obvious who these glorious ones are, but look at Second Peter. And particularly, we're going to look at verses chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. And I'm just going to pick up reading then in verse 9. He's talking about the false teachers and the Lord's ability to rescue the righteous and to keep the unrighteous under punishment. He says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who go after the flesh and its corrupt lust and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they blaspheme glorious ones. So again, the same phrase that Jude uses. They blaspheme glorious ones But look at verse 11, he provides the contrast. Whereas angels who are greater in strength and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. So here, Peter is using the term glorious ones. And then to explain what he's talking about, he says, angels, there in verse 11, 
angels are greater in strength and power, do not bring a reviling judgment. So it's a contrast. It's a, it's a similar contrast that Jude's going to do with his illustration about Michael and how he responds to the devil. So turning to Second Peter helps us to see that what, who Jude is talking about is our, our angels. Right? So when you talk about blaspheming of glorious ones, he's talking about angels. Now, he adds a comparison uh, there in, um, he gives an illustration of what he's talking about that. So I, I, if you go back to Jude, so I'm looking at the wrong book, uh, Jude, in Jude 8, he says they reject and blasphemy glorious ones. And then he mentions, he kind of gives an illustration uh, in verse 9 of this. And look at verse 9. He says, but Michael, the archangel, when he disputing with the devil was arguing about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Now, this is kind of a strange incident, right? Nowhere else recorded in, in the Bible. So let's just kind of walk through this a little bit. I'll try to unpack it. What is Jude talking about? Well, let's start with what we know from Scripture. So if we turn to Deuteronomy 34, Deuteronomy 34 contains what we know about the death of Moses. Deuteronomy 34. And I'll just read read this to you. It's not, not very long. In verse 1, then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the Mount of Pixah, which is opposite Jericho, and Yahweh showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, and all Naphtali, and the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, and all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, and the Negev, and the plain of the valley of Jericho, and the city of, ba- of palm trees as far as Zor. Then Yahweh said to him, This is the land which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your seed. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of Yahweh, died there in the land of Moab, according to the command of Yahweh. And he buried him in the valley of the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Now Moses was 120 years old when he died, and his eyes his eye was not dim, nor his vigor abated. So the sons of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab thirty days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses came to an end. Now Joshua the son of Nun was filled with the spirit of wisdom for Moses. For Moses had laid his hand on him. And the sons of Israel listened to him and did as Yahweh commanded Moses. And yet, sorry, and there has not yet arisen a prophet in Israel like Moses, whom Yahweh knew face to face in regard to all the signs and wonders which Yahweh sent him to do in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh and all his servants and all his land, and in regard to the mighty power and in regard to all that great terror which Moses did in the sight of all Israel. So there Moses died. The Lord buried him. No man knows his burial place to this day, as when it was writing, and that's true even today. No man knows where he was buried. Now, Jude tells us of this incident where Michael the archangel, right? There are only two angels named in the scripture, Gabriel and Michael. Michael is called the archangel, right? Oh, he is over the other angels. He might not be the only archangel, but he's certainly the only one mentioned in scripture. So Jude tells us that Michael the archangel disputed with the devil about the body of Moses. Now, kind of a strange incident. Where did Jude get his information from? Well, we know uh, in a few cases, church, what we call the church fathers, a few church fathers that mention two non-canonical books. Non-canonical books would be like history books that are not inspired. So these non-canonical books, one of them is called The Assumption of Moses. Um, in these books, it, supposedly it was mentioned that Moses, that, that sorry, that uh, Michael fought the devil for the body of Moses. So again, there's a lot in these books, but Jude may have plucked those out of the books. If those books existed, we don't really know. Those books today, The Assumption of Moses, doesn't exist today. All we, we just know of them from other writings, so we can't examine them. But in any case, the, the net effect of this is that Jude was under the, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, right, was either given this information or was given confirmation that the that the oral tradition passed down about this was actually true. It's like Paul sometimes quoting a, a pagan prophet, right? It doesn't mean that he's, that he's um, 
approving of everything else that was said by them. But in this case, it was true. Right? So Michael and the devil fought over the body of Moses. What did the devil want to do with the body of Moses? Well, your guess is probably as good as mine. Right? A guess would be that he wanted to desecrate his body and he wanted the Israelites to know where the body was. Because the scriptures tell us God didn't want any man, any human being to know where the body was. So our guess, a good logical guess, and that's what it is, is that the devil wanted men, the Israelites, to find it so that they would become a temptation to worship that, to set up a temple to, to Moses. You know, kind of like what's done today in Israel, lots of places, you know, they anywhere where there's like something famous that happened, they erect some some temple where you can go worship. Well, that's what exactly what had happened if that was the burial site of Moses. So uh, most likely that's why. But again, we're not told why. The, the, the point isn't why. The point is how Michael responds. Now, who is Michael? Michael is a holy angel. He is the archangel. He has authority over all other angels. Who is he contending with? The devil. What is the devil known for? Lies and slander, blasphemy. Right. So here you have a righteous angel contending with the devil himself over the body of Moses. Now, now, Michael, right, and again, we're reading between the lines. At some point, God wanted, sent Michael to do something with Moses' body. Maybe it was Michael that actually did the burying of Moses' body. Right? That's probably what happened. And during that point, either during the burial or before, uh, before that, then they had this kind of dispute between Michael and the, and the devil. But here's, here's the point of why Jude is writing this. He's saying, look at righteous Right, the righteous angel's response, right? So the righteous angel who is operating under the authority of the Lord, under the authority of God, right? Look at how he responds, or he doesn't respond. There's two different things he does, that Jude does. He said, but Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, was arguing about the body of Moses. Look at what he did not do. He did not pronounce, he did not dare pronounce against him a blasphemous judgment. So Michael did not have authority from God to pronounce judgment on Satan. And he was not about to presume that authority to issue that kind of judgment. I, now the, the contrast here is phenomenal what Judah's doing. Here is a perfectly righteous angel. He cannot sin. If he sins, he's fallen. Right? But angels, the holy angels, don't sin. He's perfectly righteous. And here is a despicable, evil angel, the leader of the evil angels, and Michael won't even dare pronounce judgment against him. You see the contrast? Michael's like, mm -mm, I'm going to stay in my lane that God has given me. I am not going to assume authority I don't have. But, but, even, but you see the contrast. And yet the false teachers who are, who are down here, they don't have a problem blaspheming glorious ones who are majestic, who reflect God's glory, and who are so much stronger and more mighty than they are. Do you see the contrast that Jude's using? That's, that's the, he wants it to shock his readers. Just like, put your hand over your mouth. But that's, that's what the false teachers will do. They will blaspheme, and verse 10 jumps in, they will blaspheme things they don't even understand. But, but look, at, I'm getting ahead of myself. He says they... Michael did not pronounce a judgment against the Lord, but look at his response. What, did, what is his response? The Lord rebuke you. Right? Michael was going to do his job, whatever that was, whether it's burying Moses or protecting, protecting the body. We're not given those details. He was going to be faithful to that task. And the devil was contending with him. And really, the, Michael's theology is really good, to say the least. So he knows that the devil is God's devil. It's Martin Luther's quote. The devil is God's devil. Right? So the devil was there contending, and maybe the Lord permitted that as a test to Michael to see if Michael would continue to, to be righteous and holy. We, we don't know. But the point is, false teachers are going to be arrogant in their thinking. Essentially, blasphemy is arrogance. It's you thinking higher of yourself than you ought to think. And you're assuming authority that you have and you're putting someone else down. You're putting yourself in the judgment seat of God. 
Because okay? who has a, who has authority to judge? God. Who's authority to judge? God. And the only way that we can judge, like judge sin, is because God's word gives us that authority to do that. It's not our own authority. So we need to be very careful in how we we interact and talk to one another, and even how we even interact and uh, not interact, but how we talk about those in authority, especially that we don't like, especially those in authority who are unrighteous and we could say even evil. So let this bite a little bit into how we speak of them. So I don't think Michael the Archangel, if he were here, is going to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against political leaders here on earth. I just don't think he's going to do that. And so let that bite a little bit in your life and in my life. We are to have holy speech. We are to slander and blaspheme no one. That's what the Word of God tells us. But false teachers do this routinely. They do this routinely. So they... They blaspheme glorious ones. And if you just kind of build on that, look at verse the verse 10 says, these men blaspheme the things they do not understand. Now they'll say they understand it, but they don't understand it. They don't have the spiritual capacity to understand it. They've rejected the word of God, the only thing they, that can help them understand it. They rejected it. So they can't understand the, the, the reality of what is going on in their life, what they're doing. But he uses a contrast in verse 10. He says, the things which they know, they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. Right? That's the comparison the Holy Spirit uses of the false teachers. Oh, they know something. They don't know what they're proclaiming to know. But what they do know, they know instinctively. Now, think about their instinct. Jude has already called them to be ungodly persons. And he's going to draw that out later. Right? So by instinct, they know ungodliness, like unreasoning animals. Right? No matter how smart they claim to be, right? the Holy Spirit says they are like unreasoning animals. And he adds this, by these things they are destroyed. By the very things they are pursuing, they will be enslaved and they will be destroyed by them. And this isn't talking about like a, a, a judgment yet to come. This is talking about the judgment that's here and now. By these things, they are enslaved. This is kind of the Romans 1 type of judgment. This is, this is something that, that God's giving them over to this and what they think will be um, you know, a great uh, um, pleasurable thing is that only for a short time, but it soon becomes a horrible master. It enslaves them. Right? And they're the ones who are... Um, in position of, of not in command authority, but they're in a position where they are like being told what to do by the things that they're, the lust that they're pursuing of the flesh. So Jude gives us these characteristics to identify false teachers among us, to help us to contend earnestly for the faith. Right? Apply these things, use these things. And remember that we want to do so for the, for the love of Christ. So when you contend for the faith, we don't want to do so with like um, the fighting fundamentalist mentality. Right? We want to do so for the love of Christ. Cling to the scriptures, but also rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Keep your perspective on, on God's ultimate judgment of them, that God's in control. He's guiding, he's leading, he's your shepherd, he's with you. And use his word, the faith once for all handed down to the saints to help you contend earnestly for the faith. I'm, I'm emphasizing these things because there are so many false teachers out there today and I'm concerned for you. I don't want you to be influenced by them. So guard your life, guard your doctrine. And if you have any questions about, about a particular uh, resource or a particular pastor or somebody you're listening to feel free to ask me i may not know but i'll help you i'll help you filter through that so that that you're listening to to sound solid theology which is going to help you to live your life for the glory of god well, let's pray together our lord we are indebted to you 
you are our shepherd. You've given us your word and you've given us of your spirit to lead us and guide us, to help us know what is truth and cling to it. Oh Lord, help us to contend earnestly for the faith once for all handed down to the saints so that we might glorify you, so that we might express great love for you. Lord, thank you for working in us. Help us to just to take these things, these truths, and apply them to our lives on a regular basis. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the pulpit ministry of Medina Bible Church in Medina, Ohio. You can find church information, a complete sermon library, and other helpful materials at medinabible.org. This message is copyrighted by Medina Bible Church. All rights reserved.